0: Latino Stories, Historias Latinas es un podcast que nace del proyecto de narrativas orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos in Ohio, con entrevistas en español, inglés and Spanish. Guest today is la Doctora Silvia Mendoza. Silvia Mendoza Aviña was born and raised in Yanaguana, San Antonio, Texas. She's an assistant professor in the Mexican American Studies Program at UTSA and the Department of Race, Ethnicity, Gender, and Sexuality Studies. Her research centers the histories of Chicanex communities using Chicanex and Latinx feminist research methodologies such as oral history. She's currently working on an oral history project along with Dr. Gloria Gonzalez and community partners called the West Side Sound. Bienvenida a este episodio,
1: Silvia. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, Silvia, tell me about growing up in San Antonio. Yeah, so I was born and raised here in San Antonio. Um, I think because I went to the public schools here in Texas, is why, and because I got a different education at home from my family and my parents, Mm -hmm. is why I think I'm so invested in Mexican American studies. Um, Because growing up here, you have all these amazing experiences from your family, from your abuelos, from um, the people that you go to school with, but the curriculum is, (laughs) it counters all of that. It doesn't really teach you to celebrate. Um, your identity, your culture, your language. Um, So I had a lot of great experiences, um, you know, growing up here in San Antonio, but then I would be confused when I would like learn certain things like about the Alamo (laughs) um, that didn't really seem to fit into my reality um, of growing up and and my experiences within the home. Mm -hmm. Um, So, but there are many great things about San Antonio too. Um, Obviously, like our regional language, right, our regional food. (laughs) Those are things, yeah, (laughs) those are things I think we have, like, a lot of uh, pride for, um, and that I also think of, too, when I think about home. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm, Right. Did you grow up uh, speaking Spanish?
1: I think initially when I was younger, yes, and then with schooling, it kind of phased out, and I know it's very common for Tejanos for Texas Mexicans. Um, And I think with my parents' encouragement, too, to, like, no focus on, you know, doing well in school and being good in English, right? Right. So that was kind of an experience that I had that I know lots of folks have had here, too. Right, Mm
0: -hmm. Um, Silvia, I've asked this question just because I've met a lot of people from San Antonio uh, who, in my view, um, or who have um, Mexican heritage. Um, Do you identify as... Tejana, Mexican-American, Chicana, or all of the above?
1: (laughs) I think mostly I identify with Chicana because of like the politics behind it and the movement. Um, I will also use um, Tejana, although (laughs) I have been reading a little bit more of um, Afro-Latinx scholars um, and trying to learn Texas history from a relational lens that includes like black scholars and their interpretations of our history. And um, one of those scholars is Dr. Javier Wallace. And he does a, um, it's called Verano Negro. It's an institute that he does along with Dash Harris. And they're both um, uh, Afro-Latinx scholars and researchers. And they talk about sort of anti-blackness in Latinidad Mm -hmm. and in our histories. And um, Javier Wallace is from Austin, born and raised, <laughs> and he talks about sort of how his family um, was brought to to this area to Texas, right? Um, and he has a lot of criticisms about like the <laughs> in right. terms of like since its history from you know 1700s on. And so I think there was a a, a while that I was really proud to call myself Tejana. but ever since taking their institute, <laughs> I've been really like conflicted by. Mm-hmm. Um, like who is represented when we're saying Tejano or Tejano identity, and then who is not. Mm -hmm. So I've been sitting with that a lot. Um, And I take it real seriously, because I teach Mexican American studies, and I think I'm realizing, like, who are we including, and what histories are we saying in our canon, right? so I still feel closest to Chicana, um, and I used to claim, you know, Tehana, and I still do sometimes, especially with like Selena. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Elements of that, right? But I am like wondering, you know, given these discussions within the field, like, um, is Tehana um, appropriate, or how do we reframe it in a way that does take into account um, what Afro Latinx scholars are saying about our histories?
0: Right. I mean, I, I think we can have maybe three or four <laughs> podcasts about this, but I really like what you're saying. I mean, because it, it just adds to the complexity, yeah. complexity of our identities, right? Um, so I had earlier um, on on a different podcast, you know, uh, somebody told me that um, although they identify as Tejana or Tejanos, um, that history could be incomplete too, right? Mm-hmm. Because you become a Tejano once the border crossed, right? The, yeah. The 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 border the border moved, um. So you are sort of erasing yeah. that connection with Mexico and that historical connection, you know, with your with your um, heritage or ancestors. Yeah. So um. So there is a lot of comp- and then to add to that, what you just said, right, mm-hmm. about how, uh, maybe the early Tejanos or part of that Tejano Tejana history is our own treatment of the black community or interactions with the black community, right?
1: Yeah, I don't have any answers. It's, <laughs> it's complicated, but I like the question, yeah. right. right. Yeah.
0: Um, Silvia, today we're talking about the oral history project mm-hmm. at West Side Sound, which aims to document the history and intersection of black music, such as r and and rock and roll, conjunto, country, and Western music from the perspective of the musicians and their fans. In their knowledge and historical memory of the San Antonio community, talk to us about how this project got started.
1: Yeah, so um, so I'm originally from San Antonio, born and raised. And uh, after I finished graduate school in 2015, it took me a minute to find a tenor track position. <laughs> it's the reality of the market. And of course, the goal is or the dream is always to be able to come back home or at least be in a space that feels like home. Because I know many of us have to go to like the Midwest if we're not from there. Right. Or um, so I was very fortunate after a couple of visiting positions um, for this position to open at UTSA. And also there is an initiative right now at UTSA. Um, It's like a Westside Community Initiative. And so they put out a call for, um, for grants, uh, faculty seed grants, for any folks who are interested in doing research on the West Side. Mm-hmm. And the West Side is like a historic San Antonio barrio. It's mm-hmm. actually where my parents grew up. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and, and it's actually where I live now, too, now that I've come back home. And so... I was really surprised. I didn't anticipate coming back home. I just assumed that I would be happy, but I didn't know that there would be a mix of all these other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I guess a lot of that is connected to sort of like memory and remembering and even grief. Um, I was introduced to West Side Sound music and other forms of like Tejano, Conjunto music, uh, soul and oldies um, from my parents. They're both music lovers and my dad was a mm-hmm. Um, And he was actually in a couple of little grupos um, during the time that... Um, during like his 40s and 50s, I think one was called Texas Lightning, one was called, um, I forget the name of the other one. Um, And so when I saw the call for the the grant to do research on the west side, and just being from here and coming back home and thinking about my own experiences and my parents, um, and being in Mexican American studies, it just felt like it was a great opportunity to really look at, Chicano, Chica Next Cultural Production to look at our music mm-hmm. um, through this seed grant. And, um, and we're also lucky to have Dr. Gloria Gonzalez in Mexican American Studies, who before her career in academia, um, she was a, a road manager for Little Joy La Familia, who's like oh a goodness, huge, yeah, <laughs> huge Dano singer and associated with um with the movement too. And so um, we talked and we knew that this would be something that the community um would really want to see reflected. And that has been the case. Folks have been really eager to share their memories too of this music and what it means to them and places that they would listen to it, people they would listen to it with too, bands that they would see. So <clears throat> even though it's a project that says it's about the West Side Sound, it's actually really about like Chicano music from San Antonio and like Chicano music and histories and memories from the barrio. Mm-hmm. There are folks who already research um, the West Side Sound, like um, Chuco Garcia, he did an independent film based on Dimas Garza from the Royal Jesters. And there's um, Jesse Garcia who has this huge collection in his home of mm. flyers and 45s and all of these records. And um, also uh, Rambo Salinas also um, is a collector and a curator. And there are folks here within the city who have or who are, like are the experts of the West right. Side Sound. And so something I want to make clear is that they exist and they've been doing this work. And I think my approach as a Chicana feminist professor in Mexican-American studies is sort of like the community, like the community has knowledge and experiences and stories. And I feel like this is one project of many where I want to sort of like begin documenting that and finding platforms to share that with a larger public outside of the university. Um, Because oftentimes, we have the privilege of sort of like learning these things and talking about these things uh, in a classroom setting, um, but all of us are always connected to our family and our, our community, so I've been using oral histories as a way to sort of like extend beyond like the university, um, but yeah.
0: Right, and uh, and so you're adding to this um, sort of research, right, mm-hmm. and and including oral history because I think that providing that platform for either musicians or uh, fans or community members that haven't had that platform to to really think and share yeah. how this has impacted them is so valuable. And like we, you said earlier, right? I, I mean that that connects so much in in my view. Um, doing this work too, the oral history work, is that a lot of time our communities or marginalized communities, um, underrepresented communities, have never been not only offered the platform, but also to tell the story their way, right? Uh, But also to have that as primary sources for our students, right? And to really have... Uh, help them understand that our the knowledge exists in our communities and is valuable right so this become or can potentially become those primary um, sources that we use in our classes right when we study and when we connect students with their own history in some ways.
1: Yeah that is the dream too to find a way later to connect it to curriculum more explicitly but you're so right I think about all that I think about that all the time in the mosque classes in terms of like, we have knowledge and history, right? We need to document it, talk to your families, ask them questions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh,
0: what have you and Dr. Gonzalez discovered about this community, which is also your community? You And, and now you're back in the community, right? Um, I imagine there is um, this personal connection or reward even for, uh, for, from being able to do this, to do this work.
1: Yeah, no, I definitely feel um, I've been really slow about the project, I think, because even though I'm from here, I do feel like I want to be respectful because I have been away for so long. It was a privilege to go away to go to school. And so I think coming back, I've been really um, slow and and respectful in terms of like, well, who is already doing this research, right? And how do we incorporate them? but I think some things that we've discovered is yeah, the desire for folks, exactly what you had said before, for community folks to share their histories, um, the eagerness, um, and also the expansiveness. So I think even though the project, again, we're asking folks about West Side Sound, we're also encountering like visual artists who have <laughs> who have painted things about the West Side Sound. Or we're also encountering DJs, right? Like Rambo Salinas is also a DJ. But then there are so many other DJs who host nights at these different bars, we're also encountering like venues, these historic sites that don't exist anymore or used to exist, um, or or they exist in people's memories. And so thinking about what it also these sites tell us, right? What histories do they reveal? Um, And then also sort of like, um, I think of a feeling of, and I don't know if this is my own, like I'm projecting this because I think oral histories did become popular with the pandemic or Mm -hmm. more increased Mm -hmm. with the pandemic. And I think that has a lot to do with sort of like legacy. And I think there was a lot of fear within communities of color that we were going to possibly lose elders, right. To illness. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think that created a sense of urgency to like document, document, which is really great. But that is something I kind of hear with some of the musicians um, that they do want their story told, that they do want to be remembered, that they want to know that their contributions like that they mattered And they definitely do already to so many people who are already like following and collecting this work. But the more and more folks that we talk to, we do see there is that side of that sort of like, yeah, we want this history. We want to be known um, for the things that we did here in San Antonio, for the music we produced, for the events that we curated. um, And so that is sort of rewarding. Right, right. Um,
0: And I imagine too that. there have been challenges in doing this work, so I'll, I'll get to that here in a minute. But um, I know, uh, especially when we're working in projects that are that involve, you know, this interaction with people, such as you know, collecting someone's story, which is often is a, a very intimate, um, you know. Uh, type of methodology, right, where you um, sort of build trust, you sometimes um, end up going into people's homes to, to, to interview them um, or their studio if they have, or maybe, you know, this sort of um, uh, uh, museum that they might have in their houses or in their yeah. offices, right? Um, so I know the importance of having community par- uh, partners in, in a project like this. Tell me how you how, how, why that was important for this project and how uh, you have collaborated with, with community partners.
1: So the good thing about the Westside Initiative and the Faculty Seed Grant is they were explicit in that as well, too. Um, so I think it's very much rooted in sort of the principles of Mexican-American studies and ethnic studies. But they did require um, that when you applied for the grant that you did have a partner and so uh, Dr. Gonzalez and I decided to reach out to Jaime Macias of Jaime's Place and um, his venue. It's a bar and it's a music venue, but it's also become like a community space. Mm-hmm. Um, he has already um, created events that invited West Side Sound musicians. Um, he has supported uh, different organizations who do fundraisers or who do their own kind of events. And, and he's right there in 78207 in the barrio, literally one block away from the Patio Andaluz, which is another historic venue where Westside bands would play um, in the 50s and the 60s. Mm-hmm. Right now it's Cafe Don Juan <laughs> and they have really good food, really good tacos, breakfast tacos and caldo. Okay. Um, but previously it used to be a, a venue. And so Jaime is literally a block away. And I think he does have a, a, a vision and an understanding of, of preserving culture, preserving pride in the barrio. And so that made sense. And then additionally, um, we've worked with, again, um, Jesse Garcia, and like you said, in his home, he has his own museum. (laughs) Um, And it made sense to reach out to the folks who are already doing this work out of respect, right? Out of recognizing their um, labor and their time and inviting them as much as possible. Um, The participants who get interviewed, we also view them as partners too. The grant largely went to um, creating an event, introducing the project, but then also paying all of the folks that we interviewed. And so um, we've tried, there's a long list and it keeps growing, but we were trying to identify as many folks as possible who either were musicians or collectors, but also like the community themselves, right? Not having to have an official title. Um, And so, and paying them for their time and labor and their expertise too. Um, And then we've also worked again with Rambo Salinas, who's a curator, a DJ, um, Maricela Olguin who um, was born and raised on the west side and who is a community organizer. Um, Jeremy, Jeremy Landine, who is a, um, he just got his master's degree from St. Mary's University. All of these folks have been very um, willing to share their resources and their time to contribute to the project and to documenting memories. So, um, And there's more folks too that are, <laughs> that wanna be a part of that, so I think that's great. Great.
0: Um, so going back to the challenges, um, I. You know, I think sometimes we go into communities and um, so there might be time, you know, uh, challenges with time or when to set up an appointment or like um, in my case, I've had um, uh, instances where it took me, unfortunately, too long to set up that appointment and the person was an elder and then they were no longer here. So I, you know, we, we missed out on the opportunity to, um, to document their, their history. Um, and then there's other like intra-community um, challenges that happen, right? And that you don't realize until you're, you're in, the, in the community carry out, carrying out this project. Um, so what, what kind of things have you um, encountered and how have you navigated this? And it's okay if it's still in the process. I think we learn new things, right? I think um, like you, uh, so I'm new, new to San Antonio, in, in terms like I don't, I'm not from this community. I, I am from a border town, uh, so sometimes people see me. I'm like, oh, you're from here, uh, but I'm also new. So I, um, you know, I, I'm beginning to sort of get to know the community, get, make myself visible so that I can build trust as well. Yeah. Um, but so yeah, now so talk to us a little bit about some some of that, you know, sort of process of starting, stopping, starting.
1: Yeah. Um, I think I'm learning so much too from you and your work and from uh, Dr. Silvia Fernandez um, in terms of using tools and uh, principles from digital humanities mm-hmm. to find a way to deal with some of these challenges. I think one of the biggest challenges is resources. Um, it's myself, Dr. Gloria Gonzalez, um, who is uh, an instructor, a lecturer, so non tenure track at the university. And so, um, We try to be mindful of, like, her time and her labor, right? Right. Uh, As well as the community partners, too. Um, With the seed grant, we were able to give some funding, but nowhere near enough to, like, honor the labor of everybody. Uh, And so that's made the project really, really slow. So, again, there's this long list. Some of the challenges have been, like, who to interview first, right? Right. Um, how to communicate with the community that we want all of their (laughs) information, but there is limited like money, limited staff, (laughs) Mm -hmm. limited resources. Um, And so I think something I've been learning from Dr. Celia Fernandez is sort of using Facebook or using, um, a website to sort of like share with the community, like what's going on. It's something I've not been good at, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, letting them know that, you know, this is what the process is. Even this is my approach to oral history. So she's been really teaching me what some, you know, what that would look like laid out and how that works to communicate with folks. Cause I think, um, I think at times some people can be like, well, why haven't we been approached? And the reality is cause there's not any money. Like we know about these folks, but there's not money or time yet. Because in addition to the interviews, like we have to put them somewhere, we have to edit them. Some of the interviews that I've done were not the best quality like with this equipment. Mm -hmm. So I think those learning, uh, those growing pains, um, I'm starting to see. Um, And I also think um, obviously like the time that it takes to apply for grants which are not guaranteed Mm -hmm. (laughs) to help support the work and I think more on a social level, um, some other challenges have been like, how do we make sure that the um, people that we interview aren't all um, mostly men? <laughs> As feminist researchers, how do we expand? Um, how do we expand the project to make sure that women, queer folks are included because we're always present throughout history, right? right. And I noticed that that's been a thing when people say, like, oh, have you interviewed this person and this person? It usually is, you know, men that were a part of the, the music mm-hmm. scene or musicians. So that's been another challenge, too, is to sort of, like, broaden that up.
0: Um, so I know that, and, and this is from hearing some of your presentation, I've, I've had the opportunity to hear um, about this project uh, through two conference presentations that you gave. And and you actually brought two different community partners, and I and I really loved that you, um, you know, your commitment to including uh, the people that you're working with. Uh, and so my question is what, what, um, or how are you navigating sort of the multiple generations? And I know that you said, um, so there's that time, right? Like, or that that money um, it, as, a, as a challenge um, to continue to do this work. But um, you're also meeting people that are not only part of that those years, right? Like mm-hmm. producing music or making music, but you also have the younger generation um, who are consuming this music. And as you might know, it's like hip now, yeah, <laughs> to have records, to to acquire like uh, equipment to play those lps and you know and and so on so uh, so how um have you thought about this and is there um, i don't know if you've started doing that or conversations but is that something that you would also like to document um as you as you move along this project
1: yes definitely for sure um there have been two elders who are musicians associated with the west side sound who have said either explicitly or in a roundabout way like they weren't there. <laughs> like, why are you talking to so so and so? They weren't even like a part of the scene. Or why are you talking to so and so? And I kind of get that, and I understand that in terms of like, they really want their legacy to be acknowledged, mm-hmm. and so that that's how I that's how I understand where they're coming from, and I think. But there are so many like you said younger folks who are doing the work of like keeping the music relevant and alive and introducing it to other generations Mm -hmm. like there's so many bars here with like 20 year olds who like have soul nights and they're playing like vinyl records with this music which is so wild um it is and it isn't when you think about like latinx cultural expression but it is in terms of like why do they still care why do they still have an attachment right so they are doing this work of keeping the music relevant And so since this is kind of like, um, I don't want to say it's introductory, but it has made me think about in terms of like the generational divide, like creating a larger website or a larger project that is Sananto culture production, right? And so one element of it is the West Side Sound. And we do have elders associated with that. But then I think it gets bigger and bigger. And I think it goes out to, again, like these DJs. Mm -hmm. So possibly, again, finding funding to do interviews with folks that do play this music and not just this music, but also like documenting their form of culture production, right? Whatever music they're contributing to. And so I think long-term, I think it'd be really cool to have like a Sananto culture production, like digital humanities website, and you can learn about the Westside Sound, but you can learn about these visual artists who have done stuff related to Westside Sound, but then they also do their own artwork mm-hmm. where you learn about DJs. And again, this is the younger generation, right? Who are playing this music but then they also are involved in other events. Um, one thing that's really cool about Jesse Garcia's like basement museum is that he's preserved the original flyers that were coming out at the time and it makes me think about current flyers too like and it also makes me think about conversations we've had with um, Rambo Salinas, who is a partner who has said, like, we don't even have, like, a music museum that documents, like, San Antonio is known for multiple forms of music, right? The Tejano, Conjunto, Cumbia. Um, and he, you know, acknowledged that we don't have, like, a, a place where folks can, like, learn about these histories. And so I think... I don't know that I'd ever be able to, like, get a museum going. But I think in the digital world, like, there's got to be a way to at least document the folks who contribute to all these forms of expression. And then that's a way to sort of to reach out and document, like, older generations, but then to also see what current generations are doing and how they're expanding um, our history and our identities, too. Right. And so definitely
0: digitizing all of those posters, right? All of that newspapers, clippings, if they have, which I'm sure... I'm sure they're there. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Silvia, what, what uh, aside from this, you know, very important project, what else um, are you working on right now in terms of research, teaching, or any, anything related to, um, to your work? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I do have another oral history project with the um, mujeres that lead Mexican-American studies in San Antonio. I think that's a little bit of like a self-serving project because when I started with tenure track, I realized like, oh, there's so much I don't know about working in these institutions. And it turns out here in San Antonio, we do have lots of Mexican American Studies programs, and all of the folks who are leading those programs are women of Mexican descent. They're Chicanas. That's at Palo Alto, that's at Northwest Vista, that's at San Antonio College, UTSA, here at AM San Antonio. Um, there are so many, and even at Our Lady of the Lake, although I think Dr. Vial, uh, Amy Villarreal, she just left um, to Texas State. Um, But I think there's something to the movidas that are involved for these mujeres to keep these programs afloat in institutions that often don't support them. Mm -hmm. And as a a junior faculty, somebody on tenure track, I want that information. Like, how do you do this job? How do we sustain ourselves? And not just sustain ourselves, because I think something that came up in a lot of the narratives of these mujeres, these leaders, is that... um, they are doing so much t- work and labor to keep them alive, but but to thrive, like, th- we need more institutional resources, right? And so that project kind of came out of my own starting, and then my own realizing, like, women's leadership is often overlooked, Chicana leadership is often overlooked, and there's so much, um, like, knowledge, so much experience of these folks who are keeping things together with, like, 10 cents from the institution. Um, so that's another project that I've been working on and, and wanting to return to.
0: Great, great. Um, no, it makes me think about um, the importance of having that documented, right, that history of the Mexican-American studies throughout the city. Um, because too, sometimes we forget sort of that the origin, like what did they have to fight to actually get that center started, right, or that program started? Um, and in terms of thinking also about the future, how do we continue going? How do we sustain it? Um, and honoring those, honoring those that um, made made that possible, we often forget, right? We often forget.
1: Absolutely. I think about that all the time in this position is institutional memory, right? Like, what don't I know about the movidas or the decisions that were made by these women within a particular context, right? And what can that teach me about being in that position now into the future? Um, I know that Dr. Keta Miranda and Dr. Josie mendez Greta at UTSA, they had had to do a lot of movidas to create Mexican-American studies. And it was through a different department. It was previously bicultural bilingual studies. Mm. And we're very lucky now to have this new race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality studies department. And I often wonder, like, what did Josie get to have to do? <laughs> How did they know? Like, and so yeah, finding ways to digitize like emails or memos or to collect their stories, like, I think that's important. Obviously for myself again, self-serving, but also for the community too. Sometimes I feel like because Mexican American studies exist, the community might think that it's doing you know well, or not realizing like how much of is it how much of a struggle it is for the university to support us. You know, uh, beyond like their DEI checkbox <laughs> um, um, <Like> exactly. <laughs> um, and so I do think it's important for the community to understand that. They were the ones that helped to initiate even, like, the creation of Mexican-American studies through their activism and that, um, along with, like, these leaders, right, and that we still need that in 2022 and into the future.
0: Absolutely. And the same way I think about um, educating our students, right, Mm -hmm. Um, of that work, um, which sometimes we forget um, or we take for granted. Um, Just a a brief example of that was, you know, I I was a... as a, at a big research university, and I came here, and this is a Hispanic-serving institution, and you can tell, like you, you, you just came to the campus and you see um, how student the students are represented, and the art and the the signs of the the buildings, and. Um, and so to me that's very powerful and I make sure to remind the students by the way (laughs) enjoy this because this is unique to this institution and to Uh, the city Mm -hmm. yes Mm -hmm. I'm glad you tell (laughs) absolutely Uh, Silvia thank you so much for this conversation thank you a todos gracias por escucharnos y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros hasta la próxima